hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Ever hear of the Pride ETF, LGBT ETF, or even the EQLT ETF? Ever bank with or used Equality Credit Union, Daylight Bank? or Superbia Credit Union? There's a good chance you haven't heard of these banks, credit unions, or investments. And if you did, you're not using them now because they've all gone out of business. Why, with $1.4 trillion in purchasing power in our community, have all these LGBTQ banks, credit unions, and investments gone away? You're listening to Queer Money, episode number 462. And today we're joined by Spencer Watson, the founder and executive director of the Center for LGBTQ Economic Advancement and Research a.k.a. CLEAR. Spencer is a graduate of Berkeley Law, where they studied consumer financial protection, prudential regulation, lending discrimination, and civil rights, and then interned at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's Office of Fair Lending. We're tackling these questions to help our community start talking more about the opportunities it has with LGBTQ financial institutions and investments. Let's get on with the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. So welcome back to the Queer Money Podcast, everybody. There has been a topic that David and I have been ruminating on for a couple of years, actually. And it seems that the more time goes on, there's there are more situations that arise that made us question what seems to be going on. Over the course of our duration with Debt Free Guys and the Queer Money Podcast, we've uh, been watching and also been reached out to by different leaders throughout the world of finance, whether they have an LGBTQ plus focused mutual fund or exchange traded fund, or they have a bank or a a credit union that's trying to target or to um, serve our community. It seems like there's been a lot of inspiration over the last couple of years to to do this kind of marketing and service to the LGBT community, but nothing has really taken hold. And so Dave and I have some opinions and thoughts on why that might be, but we didn't want this to just be like a, a monologue we want to bring bring somebody in who we know has some We'll save uh, that for other boring topics. <laughs> <laughs> we want to bring in some people, someone who we know has a passion and also some knowledge on some of these situations and want to bring in a friend that we've made a couple of years ago and had the opportunity to meet with or talk with a couple of times over the phone so we thought now's a great time to have Spencer Watson on the Queer Money podcast. So welcome to the show show, Spencer. Thank you guys. I'm really happy to be here. Absolutely. So just to get the conversation started, I don't necessarily see this as being sort of an, an interview style as a, in a traditional format, but more of a, a discussion or a dialogue among the three of us. But just to get things started is, what's the the value of there being an LGBTQ plus investment or in banking institution? And if there is a value, why does it seem so challenging for there to get some traction behind that? Yeah, the, I mean, there's been a history of LGBTQ focused financial services institutions. As you pointed out, there's been a number of organizations that have sought to create either investment vehicles or consumer level financial institutions. And so, I mean, there's a, a history that you know dates back decades and decades. 
into you know the 20th century with Atlas uh, Savings and Loan, which was a uh, bank that was located in San Francisco and was an LGBTQ-focused um, savings and loan. And there's you know also been gay-focused uh, credit union. Uh, the Dallas Gay Alliance actually formed a credit union in, I think it was 1988, and they lasted for about 10 years before they were absorbed um, into a larger credit union uh, body. As you know, there's also been you know traction in you know the last you know several decades on creating an LGBTQ-focused you know consumer-level financial institution. There was an effort in Seattle called Equality that was focused on creating what they call the Equality Credit Union. There was an effort to create a an LGBTQ-focused credit union with the project Superbia. And recently there was also a project to form an LGBTQ-focused bank and fintech with Daylight. And so, you know, all of these institutions, you know, particularly for, you know, the consumer level ones have potential to really accelerate wealth within the community by using community savings to generate loans to community members. And particularly if those loans are well-priced and fair loans, that can really be powerful for folks to achieve their personal financial goals or their business financial goals. Now, I think you know some of the challenges that I've seen with these different projects, sometimes you know, they come in the form of poor internal controls and management. And so with Atlas Savings and Loan, that bank eventually went into receivership after it made a number of risky and bad loans, particularly on construction and, and property. Eventually, actually, the shareholders of that bank then actually sued the management because they alleged that there was financial fraud and misrepresentation to the board on the basis of the financial condition of that, that bank. You know, it's tough to say, you know, what, what has happened with some of these other recent, you know, entities, but it, you know, also, you know, it seems that there have been, you know, some assumptions made about the LGBTQ community and what actually creating a, an LGBTQ focused financial institution means without much attention to the actual needs and experiences of LGBTQ people. So I'll leave it there for a moment. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with you that there clearly has been a long history in in and going back that there the efforts. I think that the value that a lot of people are trying to, or the solution that this that they're trying to bring is historical discrimination. Is you know even today you know twenty twenty three in the Motley Fool Debt Free Guys LGBTQ plus money study we still saw more than 60%, what was it? 55% say they've been discriminated against. That's up from 48% last year. Right. Say they, they, that they've been discriminated against. And then with, we go back to, I think it was the University of Iowa or Iowa State University that did the study that showed over a 20-year time period, same-sex couples were 73% more likely to be denied a loan by their financial institution when compared to others that had the exact same financial conditions that they had. I think those kinds of things are, that's the kind of the immediate thing we think of is we want to be able to be in control to, to 
to get rid of those kinds of things. You know, and you bring up a good point that lending, in many ways, when done properly, does lead to wealth creation within the community or within communities. It's the reason why we're seeing so many banks that are now labeled as black banks, and we're seeing more and more institutions getting more and more specific about the customers that they're serving because they understand that they want to engender that customer and fulfill the needs of that customer. I think the truth is the value needs to be deeper than just let's end discrimination because that is something that we are starting to see be erased in some other institutions. Yeah. To me, there's just a huge disconnect. I mean, we use the, we quote that the LGBTQ community has a purchasing power of $1.4 trillion. So we allegedly we have the money, or at least a, 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 demo, a percentage of us have the money. And there's clearly the need. I'm just struggling to see why there isn't the bridge between the two. You know, David and I were talking about this before we got started the interview. It, it seems to me, specifically with the banks and the credit unions trying to serve our community, that at least recently, they were more concerned about inclusive marketing and even educating people on the use of pronouns than it was actually creating the products and services that somebody expects in a bank. And so when David and I, David and I have a bank account and an investment account, and there has been little, little draw for us to go to some of these institutions because they only offered maybe a debit card or they just couldn't offer the breadth of services that we want or need. So why would I then take all my money out of the institution that can give me the services that I need to an institution that, that can't? Just being LGBTQ, I don't think that it's enough. So I, but I, I mean, I get to throw it to you, Spencer. What is, what do you think has been some of the, the struggles? Because I mean, with Superbia and 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 Equality Credit Union, they just couldn't get to a point. It seems like that to to meet the certain benchmarks required in their respective industries to be able to open up. Is that true? Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ plus community, through access to credit tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges, particularly with forming a credit union, is, of course, capitalizing the financial institutions so that you have enough, you know, reserves of liquid capital to cover deposits and those liabilities that financial institutions have. You have to meet certain liquidity standards based on which regulator you're you're working with. And certainly, you know, with a credit union, raising the initial starting capital is a major challenge because all of the capital has to be donated. And so that, you know, capital is, you know, fully donated and um, does not have a return on investment for folks who make those contributions, which, you know, it can mean that it, in many ways, it can be easier to raise funding and capitalize a 
private financial institutions such as a bank or a savings and loan, you know, but, you know, I think the vision of having a credit union really points to the the history of, you know, the credit union movement, which is to sort of democratize banking, which previously was primarily for heads of industry and their companies, not necessarily for everyday workers. And so the credit union movement really did try to create, you know, deposit taking and lending for everyday working people. And that's, you know, one reason why the core tenants of the credit union movement remain superior member service and lower, you know, interest rates on credit products than what you might find in in the private market. And so I think that capital raising aspect has been a particular challenge for some of the credit union projects. In in fact, I'm I'm even participating right now in a credit union project to form a credit union for the LGBTQ community and for the formerly incarcerated community. And we have received a preliminary set of uh, approvals to proceed with our charter application but in order to yeah meet the the next set of, of benchmarks we do need to raise a significant amount of donated capital in many cases that you know can come from the the credit union industry itself but of course in many ways it has to come from from private individuals and i think you know sort of to your point what is the motivation to give or to support or to move your money into an LGBTQ affirming financial institution when you already are being served, you know, perhaps adequately by your current financial institution. And I think in order to make that argument, you really do have to understand what are the needs and motivations of the LGBTQ community in, in a much more nuanced and, and you know important way to actually incite people's engagement, interest, and their desire. Because it's not simply a matter of if you build it, they will come. Because right. you know m- many people already have you know a financial institution, and financial products are incredibly complicated, and, and people very rarely you know cost compare or compare you know the trade offs of different institutions. And so, you know, you have to, I think, one, establish that there is a superior offering, a superior product. And you also have to put your fingers on, you know, yeah, what are the things that are maybe yeah, interests and things that motivate LGBTQ consumers in ways that are not necessarily as dominant in the mainstream. And so I think to your point, actually, you know, in earlier this year, Clear released our own report on discrimination in, in the financial services industry and the folks' experiences. And we found that 10% of, or 11% of LGBTQ people overall reported that they had experienced discrimination specifically in the context of financial services. And of course, you know, that is much higher for respondents of color. 17% of respondents of color said they had experienced discrimination on their, based on their LGBTQ identity at financial institution and 27% of trans respondents said that they had experienced discrimination and you know so it, then understanding you know what are the pain points for you know perhaps trans folks in the process of opening a bank account and you know getting the services that they need from their financial institution needs to be you know of course a, a, a center of concern and, and focus for the folks who intend to to develop you know products and services for the community and and certainly also understanding what are you know LGBTQ specific 
financial concerns, which I think about as those undermet and underserved needs that the LGBTQ community has for financing that, you know, or, or where we have greater financial burden. So for example, with adoption and surrogacy or with affording the costs of a transition, the, those, you know, might be, you know, at, you know, good offerings. And certainly we've seen at you know, daylight before they shuttered, they were attempting to make a pivot towards actually supporting folks in their desires to become parents and to, to find adoption and, and fertility, you know, funds that they would be able to use to, to uh, meet that need. And so I think, you know, it's probably, a, you know, a, yes, a matter of developing the superior products with the unique, you know, focus and market intelligence on the LGBTQ community, which is only just now being developed by folks like yourselves and by us over here at Clear, so that, you know, folks are not making general assumptions about the community needs and are actually able to make informed decisions about how, you know, they develop their products and services. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, as you're talking, I'm wondering when you change banks, it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> it's just not easy. And I guess it's even harder today, right? Because now we have so many uh, of our uh, everyday services are paid for automatically, right? So, you know, j- just changing your credit card is a pain in the ass, right? So changing your, your, changing your bank is even, even more difficult because you have all the other things to to update. So the, the lore of going to another bank or another credit union has to be so good that it, it makes going through that trouble worth it. So I guess I was we were very aware of, of when Daylight started offering the family planning services. And we thought that was kind of a brilliant tack on their part because there is a, definitely a need for our community with help in that area. And the people that have the money to be able to do that can maybe help subsidize the, the, the launching of getting that sort of a program going. So I'm wondering, I have two questions, I guess, and I'm throwing this out to either of you. I wonder, one, what has been the missing ingredient in some of these offerings that these banks and credit unions have not been able to capture. And two, I'm wondering also, we talk about the discrimination in the community. Is that discrimination more so for the more marginalized in our community and not for the ones who have more of the assets and are comfortable at the bank or credit union that they already are? I will agree with you that changing banks, moving from one institution to another is difficult and is a barrier, I think, for a lot of people. But we also know that lots of people, I mean, I, I think we are we right now are at least at three institutions, have money and our assets at th- at least three institutions. So adding another institution is not hard today. Adding another institution and making it your place where you have your emergency savings or sinking fund, or you're saving for the down payment on your house, or you are saving to for for transitioning or having children or whatever the case may be, it could be the entryway into. And that's way that's the way most banks work, right? They, they they try to get individuals when they're young, when they're first starting their financial services journey. And because they know that the longer you're with them, the more likely you are to then add additional services. And I think that that's one of the things that that we need to think about. I think for those of us who are for lack of a way, better way of saying it, are cis, white, and part of the L's and G's, 
we have somewhat of a, of a responsibility, I think, to the to the rest of the community because we do have, and many of us—I don't want to say all of us, but many of us—do have more stable financial situations and can help support those kinds of institutions getting started. But with as many of us as there are, I'm still surprised why we see the inability for some sort of critical mass to get going. Right. I mean, so there's a missing ingredient. What, or two, right, what is then, what right? is you use the phrase build it and they will come. And I think that that's the that's the mentality that a lot of folks have is that, you know, John and I have said, you don't listen to our podcast just because you're a member of the LGBT community. Listen to our podcast because we have interesting topics, because we include LGBT things in the world of finance, in the world of money. It's not just, OK, here's a bank and it's an LGBT bank. You need to have some sort of reason for me to go there. And I think that, like you said, daylight going down the path of adding, highlighting adoption and family planning may have been the flavor that they needed to attract the right kind of people. Unfortunately, I think maybe it got started too late in their journey as an organization. Spencer, what do you think? So jumping back to what was said earlier about you know, the limited number of services that many of these institutions have been able to offer in particularly their early startup phase. And that's, in, you know, no small part because, you know, regulators for deposit-taking institutions really do also put milestones on when you can offer lending products and loans of certain sizes. And, I think in, you know, particular, the community, I think, is particularly interested in the lending and potential of, you know, that to be a way for folks to, to yeah, achieve more financial empowerment for themselves and for the community that they live in. And unfortunately, without being able to offer some of those more sophisticated lending products, I think that, yeah, there's, there's been a little less incentive for folks to want to, you know, actually open an account with that institution in order to obtain those services, mm -hmm. which means that much of the argument has been for deposit taking in order for them, for those institutions to then be able to, to actually develop those lending programs, meet their milestones to develop those lending programs. And so that's where really the rubber hits the road, right? Because that's where you're actually taking the deposits from depositors and lending them out to people and you know the interest is coming back and you're paying some of that interest to the depositor and so they get a win and the customer who got the loan I hopefully got a win out of that loan instead of struggling with it and and so I think that those milestones have, have yeah again been sort of choke points for engaging folks interest and have have stymied the ability of i think you know even daylight that was partnered with a bank in order to you know develop their their prepaid card program they're partnered with metabank you know that even you know through that partnership they weren't able to actually you know reach the stage really of, of having their own deposit taking accounts and their own lending practices right so you know i think that has been been a, a, a big struggle and you know so you know with it being said that you know some of the key interest is in overcoming lending discrimination which you know you get you guys remarked on you know that we, we've been able to observe it in the mortgage market you know, that study was particularly for same 
sex couples uh, applying for loans, I should mm-hmm. note. And so, you know, we're not even sure the significance of discrimination, you know, for LGBTQ singles or or for, you know, LGBTQ folks who, who you know, might not be identified through, you know, just, a, you know, seeing two same-sex co-applicants for a loan. And, 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 you know, so that, that does, you know, suggest that conditions might even be worse than that, uh, you know, observation. So I think overcoming, you know, that lending discrimination and also, you know, as I pointed to developing some of those more specialized products for, you know, community needs and those, those products, you know, at least when developed in a nonprofit context can be offered, you know, below market rate. And I think, you know, that superior interest rate would engage, you know, a lot of folks' interest, you know, which is, is I think, one key reason that, you know, I've been excited to pursue, you know, the, the LGBTQ credit union projects, but also, you know, I'm presently, you know, thinking that we might want to rethink the, the strategy and instead of going for a deposit taking type of institution, go more for a community development financial institution, a CDFI or a community loan fund, which can be operated through a nonprofit and offer below market rate or 0% loans. And then it skips the entire need to to take and hold deposits and can skip right to where people have their key interests, which is in the lending. And, you know, as I said, there there can be lending maybe for specific community needs, um, but also um, really just lending that resembles lending within the mainstream, you know, community, but more specialized just for LGBTQ consumers, such as as maybe a loan fund for LGBTQ owned businesses and, you know, folks who are creating LGBTQ affirming space. And so maybe, you know, by offering more public market rate loans for, you know, those types of things, we might also be able to, you know, resist the, you know, so-called death of the gay bar, which, you know, in, in my estimation is more a product of inadequate access to capital and also gentrification and other financial pressures that are particularly hitting LGBTQ businesses hard. So, so I wonder, is there a value proposition in having an LGBT banker credit union, I understand that there's a need. But if you're speaking to a venture capitalist and you're asking for funding to get something launched off the ground, you're going to have to provide them some substantive data or information to to justify that particular loan. What would the argument be? What data is there to support that, that there is enough of a demand out there from the community for specifically an LGBT bank or credit union? Is there one out there beyond just the discrimination that constantly seems to be reported year over year? Are there multimillionaire LGBT couples who are, or people who are saying, I need my own LGBT bank? I mean, I think anecdotally, I hear a lot of interest in it. I yeah. mean, and certainly the, the existence of these numerous efforts to form you know, a financial institution for, for consumer LGBT consumers, I think that that also does signal that there is appetite. I think you know, I'm very much a data person. I don't know if, yeah, anyone's ever asked that sort of specific question on a, you know, survey, uh, but I would certainly consider adding that to future surveys that I conduct. And, you know, I've also seen, you know, the proliferation of all sorts of, of different LGBTQ affirming financial professionals, including financial yeah. counselors and wealth managers and, you know, folks who are really marketing themselves on their support for the LGBT community. And so I think, you know, that does show that, you know, there, there is 
certainly apparently you know, a value being seen by those professionals in terms of, of making that statement and communication. And I think, you know, it's a little bit of an older study, but uh, Prudential uh, conducted a study um, called the LGBT financial experience and in, in that they, they asked folks about why they were choosing to work with certain financial wealth advisors or, or, or um, financial advisors and how they, they made that decision. I mean, many of them said that it was through a community referral and that, you know, they selected the person because they knew that that person would be affirming of, you know, their LGBTQ identity. So there is a lot of evidence to support it. Again, I think, you know, it does have to speak to LGBTQ people in order for for them to want to, to engage you know, with that, that product. And I think that's, you know, particularly been a struggle for the, you know, mutual funds or ETFs that have been, you know, formed to, you know, support investors who want to invest LGBTQ friendly. I think, you know, in looking at what the contents of those indexes or ETFs are and realizing that it's still many like just blue chip companies Mm -hmm. that also make massive contributions to Republican, you know, candidates who are anti-LGBTQ. You know, I think that there's also been some problems in being able to describe what does it mean to be LGBTQ friendly as a company in order to be included in those ETFs and indexes. And without that explanation, I think there's, you know, a, a little bit of a raised eyebrow and some skepticism because the LGBTQ community has, has a complicated relationship with the corporate community. Of course, we, you know, support and really, you know, enjoy the support of our corporate donors, you know, particularly come out at pride and, you know, slap a, a you know, a rainbow on a, on a float and then, you know, drive it by. Thanks, Wells Fargo. But then, of course, the question becomes, you know, what, what is Wells Fargo actually doing for the community? And so I think, you know, a lot of people have, have expressed skepticism around that kind of, you know, so-called rainbow washing. And, you know, also, yeah, we, we you know, many of these indexes have relied heavily on the HRC's equality index of employment practices. But of course, as was just observed, you know, that that index doesn't necessarily factor in corporate donations and giving and political stances that the the corporation takes either in support of or, you know, maybe to the detriment of the LGBTQ community. So I think, yeah, you know, with that being said, there's, you know, a, a heightened scrutiny and skepticism for all types of institutional, you know, groups. And, you know, I think, of course, with, you know, many LGBTQ people having very strong political views and, and you know, frequently towards the more progressive end, I think, you know, there's also a certain amount of skepticism of, you know, the, the you know, profit motive and the investment in a history of, of capitalism that has not always been accepting of LGBTQ people, certainly, but also, you know, has excluded communities of color and immigrant community. And, you know, as you sort of observe, you know, those communities have chosen to fight back by creating their own, you know, community financial institutions. And so the LGBTQ community needs to to think a little bit more about what does it mean for us to be engaged in commerce 
with each other and, you know, engaged in commerce overall. I like that you touched on a number of topics there, but I, I think one of the ones I, I find very interesting, and I think that we as a community need to get very comfortable with is this idea that businesses that are created need to generate revenue and need to generate profit, right? If you're going to stay in business, you have to be generating revenue. And if you want to stay in business for any length of time period and continue to serve the community, you have to generate profit because the people that work for you want to get paid. The building that you're leasing needs to have the rent paid on it. The services that you're connecting people to, those need to be paid, right? We have to be generating revenue. And I think that there's a... I'm I'm wondering if there's a confusion that happens with this idea of here's an institution that is making profit off of the LGBT community and that we have a disdain for that because we've become so accustomed to this idea that businesses shouldn't make money off of the LGBT community. So I don't want to use an institution that's making money off the LGBT community, but at the same time, we are out there, as you said, in commerce with each other in certain ways. And those people are making money and making profit off of the LGBT community. You go to a gay bar, you go to a gay coffee shop, you go to a gay bookstore. All of those businesses are businesses that are actually generating revenue and hopefully generating profit with the intent of being able to stay in business. And I'm wondering if there's kind of some confusion with And John and I see this oftentimes when we are talking to LGBT entrepreneurs, or we see individuals posting about this online, this idea that mission is first, and then if we get around to it, we'll make some money. And I'm wondering if that's kind of the expectation that is for these financial institutions is you need to put mission first, and then you know, deal with the money on your own terms, right? And we don't really understand that when a financial institution comes to us or wants to start serving us, their first mission is to stay in business. And so they have to put, have to make a profit. And then once they make that or can generate that revenue, then they can give us lower interest loans. Then they can provide us family planning services. Then they can donate money to the community. Then they can do the good work in the community that we expect from them, but they can't do it until they actually are a for profit business. I say that loosely because there are nonprofits or there are many nonprofits that are actually profit driven businesses. They're just not giving the money back to shareholders in the same way that money is given through a for-profit company. Yeah, it, there does seem to be a disconnect. I can't tell you how many times we've seen and talked, had people reach out to us. They're struggling to keep their LGBT business open. But if you look at the the numbers and you look at what they're doing, they're way more concerned about donating whatever they earn than they are about investing that money back into their business. And, and until you've reached a point of sustainability, Trying to give from an empty cup just doesn't work, right? Your cup has has to you know kind of flow over. When what Spencer, when you said if you build it and they will come, I do feel like the banks have tried to, the LGBT banks and credit unions have tried to provide a, a valuable and a necessary service to the community, but it has to me anyway to some degree with the Pride ETF and the LGBT ETF specifically. Those two funds seem to me like it was sort of a let's build it. And they will come. But then when you look at the numbers, 
And then nobody came. And then nobody came. Right. But when you look at the numbers, it's like, well, why would I even invest in this these funds? I, I, if I'm going to do that, if I'm going to if I'm going to invest in oil and gas and all this other stuff, why don't I just go into the, the S and P 500 and S and P 500 index, which has got a considerably lower cost of uh, expense ratio, and I can have more of my money go back into my investment and, and grow much better. Those kind of seem to me like two funds specifically that seem to like, hey, we we built this. We've got you know we've got the Martina Navratilova and Barney Frank representing our company or our uh, the, representing this fund. Now just give us your money. No. Well, as I said, I, I I don't you know I I've actually thought myself you know with with some colleagues like are there ways that really the the indexes could be improved and in what ways could could that be because of course you know i think with it having been said that you know these indexes are are mostly built off of you know do you have a non-discrimination policy well yes many of these companies have a non-discrimination policy do they enforce it and many of these big look tech at their boards <laughs> do, 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 do they have privacy policies that are actually you know treating you know lgbtq content and lgbtq content creators fairly in the same way as as you know, other type of more mainstream content creators. So, you know, I, I think, you know, it really does have to be much more nuanced than just saying, hey, we, we, we you know, built this index, you know, based off this really simple model, and this is better for the LGBTQ community. And I think, you know, the question that, you know, has been, you know, sort of put on the table here is, how is it better? And how is it more interesting then, you know, yeah, actually putting my money in the S&P or something that is, you know, has a higher return on investment, mm-hmm. you know, and performs, you know, more stably. I will say John Roberts, who is the fund manager for EQLT that converted to WEQRX, we talked with him either on the podcast or for an article we wrote for Forbes or both. I can't remember. But he told us the work that he does, and they actually do make phone calls to the various companies that, that that they've got in their fund, and they check out the discrimination policies and whether they're being enforced in the middle of the country as much as they are being enforced on the parentheses. So I think they do, they do invest time in trying to make sure that that it's more than just you know based off of the corporate equality index, and that the policies are being provide applied. But that fund hasn't really moved a whole lot. So, so that kind of effort doesn't really seem to be paying off for 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 them. Yeah, I I think one of the issues that that some of these funds have is that they get started and there are expenses associated with running the fund and and managing it and doing the research and putting it out there and making it available and people put money in and isn't the inflow of money as much as there is an outflow of money. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the problems is that when people invest, they invest with the intent that eventually at some day, some point in time, they're going to take the money out. But if there's more outflows, whether that's outflows because of people taking money out or outflows because of dividends, whatever the case may be, when the, when the outflows are more than the inflows, the fund value is going to drop. And as soon as that starts to happen, then everybody starts. It's it's similar to a run on banks. People just start to run for the doors, and the, it gets the it gets tainted as this is this doesn't have a good track record. It doesn't have a good return, and so no 
no one wants to touch it or wants to put money there except for the people who were, have been in the, in it for a long time period and had a had a mission you know we know what the mission was with that originally it was money that came from a foundation and it was designed to create the index and basically be the seed money but it never really took off because they weren't getting the inflows it's, it's just just like the these credit unions it's just like just like daylight bank and all these other institutions there isn't for whatever reason even though there are millions of us we're not getting the message or we're not getting the message that causes us to act to do something you know i think of how many thousands hundreds of thousands of lgbt students are graduating or going through school right now if every single one of them were to open up a credit union account right you have you have 100,000 students open up a credit union account and put $25 in it i mean immediately right there you know you've got 2 and a half million dollars and so right but you might recall that for a deposit-taking institution, your deposit is a liability, not an asset. They may use your money in order to generate the assets for them, which are the loans and the streams of revenue that they will receive. But the the deposit is, you know, in fact, a liability, and and the interest that they're paying on your deposit, you know, is is also a cost for them. Right. So you know, so it, it's. One of those those things that yeah the the math of financial institutions is is very wonky and I, you know I think that's one reason why when I've really tried to articulate yeah the the you know wealth growth potential of deposit taking institutions it's you know it is really that you know that they are going to to take your deposit and loan it out to somebody and then pay you back from the, the the money that they receive from that person. So, you know, it really does become, you know, sort of a, a virtuous cycle of community benefit as long as, you know, yeah, those credit products and deposit-taking accounts are all fairly priced for the community. So is it more of a marketing and promotional problem? I mean, we've got Theoretically, 20 million LGBTQ plus people, and I think it's just 18 and over in the country. We've got, uh, theoretically, between 1 and 1.4 trillion in purchasing power. We've got the people, we've got the money. Theoretically, there's the demand for it. So is it more of a a marketing? We'd rather spend it on daily life. We'd rather spend our money on daily life. That's, that's, I mean, I look back from my personal experience. You know, when I was in my 20s and and early 30s, I would rather have spent my money on enjoying daily life than setting it aside. And I think that there's still enough of people in our community that are either at that point or they're at the point where they're struggling and they just don't have the brain space to think much about this to take action. Yeah, I could see that. But It it makes it very difficult to, to manage money if you don't have it. It, right. it really does, and so right. like the, the LGBTQ wealth gap, you know, is is a real thing. HRC, you know, released it, its own reports sometime in the last years, you know, saying that you know gay men earned ninety cents on the dollar for you know compared to the average worker, and LGBTQ women and trans folks earned even less. And so, I mean, particularly, I think for LGBTQ singles, that you know is a financial 
challenge, a burden that they must overcome, and, and it makes it more difficult to afford the, the necessities of daily life as well as you know, the, the workers must have roses in addition to bread, correct? So that it is, you know, I think certainly the case that, you know, younger LGBTQ folks are, you know, particularly poorer than, you know, the the more, you know, you know, senior members of our of our community, partially because they're single, partially because they're early on in their working lives. And, you know, you know, I think the the financial decision making aspect, you know, has less to do with it than than actually the financial strains and burdens that they're situated with. Because unfortunately, you know, we're you know, we do see that LGBTQ youth are still being kicked out of their homes and deprived of, of resources for, you know, their financial needs. And and so, you know, when we actually conducted our study, you know, of, of LGBTQ, you know, consumers, what we found was, was that folks after coming out reported that they, you know, had financial losses as a result. You know, 73% folks said that they could rely on their family members financially before coming out financially or uh, before coming about their sexual identity, uh, but only 62% said they could, you know, depend on support afterwards. 85% of folks who came out to their family about their gender identity said that before that they could rely on their family, but only 57 said that they could rely on their family afterwards. So, you know, we are seeing losses of financial support for LGBTQ youth still. And so, you know, we, we asked folks, you know, what their, you know, experiences with their family where 10% of LGBTQ folks said that they were just cut off from financial support and one in 20, that's 6% said that they were deprived of resources for their education. And so that really does, you know, then also mean that they have higher student loan debt burdens in order to finance their education because LGBTQ people are more frequently, you know, recipients of higher education. And, you know, that, that then, upon graduation, coupled with employment discrimination, puts, you know, a a much greater financial strain on them in order to manage those loans. So then it can make it really difficult to, you know, even actually qualify for other loans because your credits have been tanked, you know, for all sorts of financial reasons that that are, you know, outside of your control. And, you know, I think that it's those types of nuanced understandings about the LGBTQ community that, you know, could help us also, you know, really develop informed products because, you know, m- maybe we can develop some below market rate or other, you know, facilities to support student needs. And, you know, that would, would you know, maybe, you know, reduce the financial strain and burden on LGBTQ youth after they they you know graduate from their higher institution their institution of higher learning i think that's why i said earlier i think that the responsibility in this case does follow and i'm going to i'm going to say i'm speaking to the most of the listeners of our podcast because we know the demographics of our podcast most of us who are listening to this podcast are the individuals who sit in a place of privilege and when i say privilege i mean that we're the individuals who have maybe an extra 50 or $100 a month that we are depositing into our emergency savings account, or we are putting into the S&P 500, or we're able to put that 10% or even higher into our 401ks. We're the one, how do we collectively, those of us who have the ability to do this, how do we get this message and carry this message strong enough to the others of us in the community? How do we look at each other and say, you know what? 
let's not have the extra martini tonight. Let's make a, a financial decision to support the community so that there is, for lack of a better way of saying this, there is a trickle down to creating the institution that can provide these kinds of services that individuals at the lower levels of the community who absolutely do need these at below market rate or fairer rates have have access to these. Because I don't think, and this is my opinion, I don't think that we're going to see these kinds, any of these kinds of institutions succeed until people have the balls, the cojones, the whatever you want to say, to say in a group conversation when they're sitting around brunch with their friends, I decided to support this financial institution. I decided to, to instead of saying, talking about their whatever the hot topic is right now, the who won drag race or who went on what vacation or who's dating who, to be able to slip into those conversations also this idea that we need, our community needs a, a financial institution and we should do this. And I'm trying to help do this. Would you guys be interested in doing something like that? It's going to take something like that because even these institutions that are been created don't seem to be able to get in front of enough people to start that grassroots effort to build around a community organization, community-focused organization. So you're saying the missing ingredient is more of a grassroots effort than... Because quite honestly, I, I haven't I seen the whole... I don't, I, mean, think it, it, I don't think it's solely grassroots. Yeah. But we have to be comfortable enough talking to each other and saying that we are banking at this, we are going to start banking at this institution, or we are starting to save money for, you know, what if you're talking about saving money for a down payment on a house, just drop in. I'm using this particular institution because it supports the LGBT community. And I'm hoping that someday I'll be able to get a better rate with that organization. It, that all that's all it needs to be is us being comfortable enough to slip those kinds of things. We have no problem telling people what airline we took or what hotel we're staying at or what you know what brand of shoes we bought. Just slip into your conversation. I'm using this particular bank because it supports the LGBT community. Well, again, I don't think many people talk about where they bank. No. You you guys might be a very different exception to that rule, <laughs> but you know you know for you know fi financial topics and financial products stress most people out, and so you know it's it's not frequently a, a topic of of dinner conversation because of course you know then it also you know somewhat invites the scrutiny of class. Either you might be you know perceived as elitist or maybe you might be perceived as poor. And so those those two potentials being on the table when you have that conversation, you know, that I think that can be kind of intimidating. But to the point that was actually made earlier about how strong an ethic it is within our community to donate or to participate in mutual aid. I heard a joke once that being queer is just Venmoing $20 back and forth that you know it that points to the fact that there is yes a strong desire for people to support and to give back to their community and i think yeah particularly to do so in a way that is most helpful by providing either free direct service or a no repayment required you know small dollar you know gift and you know, returning to, to what we talked about, the, you know, the, the potential 
benefit of the wealth generation through a cycle of lending, you know, that means that instead of giving somebody just a $500 payment one time that then they're going to spend and then maybe they, they will have met their financial needs or maybe they won't, that maybe what we could do is offer a $500, like maybe even 0% loan to that person. And then when they repay it, then we can take that money and give it to somebody else. I think most people, most consumers are financially responsible and have a strong interest in repaying their debts. There's a, a very like long, of course, complicated history about why that is, including um, you know m- many punitive mechanisms that the financial services industry uses to force people to repay. But if we were able to do a much better job of communicating that strong community focus and community benefit that's generated through the financial institution, that would, would go a long way to gaining people's interest because, you know, I think, you know, also said earlier, there is a a certain skepticism and perhaps rightly, you know, rightly so of financial institutions that, you know, generate money using other people's money and then pay themselves with it. Of course, you know, the, the, the people managing the financial institution have sometimes very stressful jobs dealing with their regulators and, and with, you know, their clients, but, you know, there, there's, a long storied tradition in the West of being skeptical of usury and of, of you know the practice of lending. So I think you know we we do have to to you know do the appropriate education and you know to you know get people to really see the benefit. One thing that I would also note is that many of these institutions recently that have crumbled have been focused on a national or nationwide audience. And of course, the LGBTQ community is very large nationwide, but some of the most successful community development projects that I've seen are really hap- happening locally, you know, such as the development of LGBTQ affirming senior centers or, or other like community services. And I think, you know, those types of, of projects, you know, sort of show that there, there can be a real strong benefit of thinking globally, acting locally. You know, maybe there's a benefit of creating a small community loan fund within your community that isn't necessarily going to be servicing the entire country, which is, of course, a much more complicated process and requires the oversight of, you know, many more regulators. So there might be benefits to developing, you know, yeah, more, more small community lending circles or to developing, you know, community loan, you know, land trusts that that might be able to to preserve property at more affordable rates, or you know, support property acquisitions for LGBTQ businesses or community spaces. And so, I think you know those mechanisms might be more attractive than even creating a, a pure, you know, yeah, bank or deposit taking institution. I don't know. I I. St- I, I... I agree with you to a certain to a certain amount. I look at what's happening with women-driven financial services right now. Organizations like Elvest, I mean, this is now a billion-dollar company. There are millions of women who are 
so fired up about investing, about having a solid financial future. They And you know who these people started serving? They started serving the broke moms, the women living on welfare, the women who needed the help. And they didn't offer them services for free or at a discount. They gave them the financial education they needed to get them to the point where they were profitable customers of that business. And I don't understand why we can't do the same thing with the LGBT community, especially because we do have so many people at the top who have the money that they can help, can use to seed these kinds of organizations, make these kinds of things happen. And I just think that there isn't an appetite for it in our community because we are focused on folks this is this is one of my my opinions about what's going on in our communities i think our community gets stuck in this cycle of we need you to give us stuff for free and when we get stuck in this cycle of we need you to give us the, this stuff for free then we don't have the wealth potential that you're talking about Spencer, we don't have that wealth potential for growth. If everyone who comes to the institution is saying, you need to give me a loan for free, you need the only reason that people are showing up this institution is to get the loan for free, then it won't be a wealth creating or institution because it itself won't be able to grow to the point where it will reach that critical mass to serve as many people as possible. Well, this is why when you know I'm looking towards the future of clear and where our programs might support more community lending type programs, you know, there, there, you know, is a struggle that I have, you know, with that, you know, necessity to charge for service, because I, I do think that, of course, you know, the most vulnerable and, you know, financially excluded members of our community really do need as much support as they can get. And I, I believe that is, you know, true for, for all members of our society who are, are struggling with financial security. And, and so certainly the, the case that a higher impact would be achieved through the lowest interest rate possible. And then, you know, the, the balance must be that in order to pay for the staffing, the loan servicing, for those types of things, there, there likely will have to be yeah, some some small amount of interest in, in, you know, for that. And I mean, what I hope is that through some, you know, pilot and testing programs, particularly working, you know, with, you know, probably, you know, more focused areas, localities, that we might be able to, you know, demonstrate and establish the effectiveness and benefit of those services so that they can then be scaled so that we can take that information to the potential investors, to the potential funders, and to, to, you know, really make, you know, a strong case for, you know, community investment um, for the LGBTQ community, because one of the, the other interesting challenges about really getting people interested in economic justice for the LGBTQ community is that the LGBTQ community has only existed as the LGBTQ community since the 1960s. And so, whereas black banks date all the way back to the end of the civil war, LGBTQ people, you know, yeah, have only existed for less than a hundred years. So 
one, I would note that there's a very interesting and complicated history about black um, focused banks and the earliest black focused banks were actually managed by white individuals who poorly managed them and drove them into the ground, which actually led to a huge wealth loss for the black community. That's one reason why it's so important that we do have deposit insurance today from institutions like the FDIC or the National Credit Union Insurance Fund, because then folks can you know, be confident that they'll always get their money back. Now, I mean, I, I think the failures of those black banks did a, a huge disservice to engaging black Americans in the financial services industry. And, you know, it's only been recently that there's, there's been, a, I think, a renewed interest in, you know, those types of focused services for communities of color. And, you know, because, yeah, there was just a long time skepticism of, you know, whether financial services, you know, was actually on the side of their community. Of course, the history, the history of redlining also didn't help with that. Now, you know, for the LGBTQ community, we're only beginning to understand the traumas that LGBTQ people experience financially or otherwise. And so I think taking, you know, the economic lens, as MV Lee Badgett, you know, says in, in her book, The Economic Case for LGBT Equality, that, you know, putting that alongside our long history of, of thinking of LGBTQ struggle as a human rights struggle, you know, really can can help us, you know, quantify where the harms have been and, you know, what, you know, we need to do in order to support ourselves, perhaps offer some self-help for ourselves in order to ameliorate the, those harms. And also, yeah, to, to figure out what, you know, other things need to be done, like maybe reforming the tax code in order to to actually make it more fair for you know LGBTQ people and couples. <laughs> that's <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I totally agree with you, but that takes an act of Congress, and it? <laughs> that's not that's not going to happen. <laughs> well, clear right, clear right now is supporting a bill that was introduced by Elizabeth Warren that would actually provide reparations for those individuals who were unable to file jointly while the Defense of Marriage Act was in effect, which prevented many folks who were in states that were officiating LGBTQ same-sex marriages. They, they were deprived of the benefits that they would receive as a couple. And so, of course, there, there's yet a need for Congress to act, but you know, this is definitely something that we can fix. Yeah. And and to your point, too, I mean, the Social Security Administration just started extending partner and uh, survivor benefits to people who would have been married, same-sex couples who would have been married had they had the opportunity to actually get married. So there is there is an appetite for that. It's just reforming the tax code seems a little bit daunting. <laughs> and to get a fair for people in general, let alone LGBTQ plus people. I'm, I'm struggling because I feel like we're not, I'm not really finding like a... Magic pill. Uh, yeah. I, I kind of, you know... I, I was hoping to come up with like some sort of like, yeah, magic pill, a couple of magic pills. I don't know. But I, I think something you just said, Spencer, kind of makes me wonder if if, if, if this is maybe the, the, the first step for the community is that we need to have some sort of a self-help campaign around our finances and the, the trauma that we've had to go through and overcome as a community, some of us obviously more so than others. But but maybe that that's where it is because I, I, I sort of am hearing... A couple of things. 
And it, it's, it kind of reminds me of the, of the Prudential campaign, the campaign that we did with Prudential a couple of years ago, where we talked about if we don't use the products and services that help you build wealth, it's almost impossible to build wealth. And you know, it's kind of like the dis- discussion we had with Hadassah about capitalism. You can be anti-capitalist, but if you don't engage in the capitalist system, you're just shooting yourself in the foot because that's the world you live in. So is there a way to sort of live in the capitalist system, but then use your resources to help hopefully change things for the better, or hopefully maybe change, maybe change the system. Just saying, I'm not going to engage in it. It's not going to help you. And and it's just going to, just going to hold you down. Maybe this, maybe that's the same thing with banking. You might be anti-capitalist. You might hate banks in, in general, but to, to or credit unions, but to but to not engage and not use those 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 products and services they have, even just savings and checking accounts, just makes everything harder and more expensive. So maybe what maybe maybe what what you said, Spencer, it is true. We sort of have to have sort of come to Jesus therapy session with ourselves. And how can how can we move things along? Let's not let's not cut off our nose to spite our face. Let's gain some financial stability and traction to when we overcome our trauma, and then maybe we can change the system more easily. Is that wishful thinking? I think you brought up some really uh, interesting points. And obviously, I don't think we have have time to discuss the history of capitalism and all of those nuances, because you, you know, ask what is capitalism and it's sort of the three blind men. Is is it a snake? Is it a tree or or is it a rope? And so I, I think that we as a society really need to have a more complicated and nuanced discussion about our economic future and what systems we think we want. And I think we have to do that in view of also unpacking what is capitalism and what is not capitalism. Banking and trade pre-existed 1776, which is generally regarded as the start date of capitalism when Adam Smith actually wrote his treatise on the subject. And money, you know, and and lending and, and all sorts of different things that are frequently strongly associated with capitalism are actually not capitalism. They're mechanisms of the economy. They're mechanisms of trade. And I think in thinking about what a future looks like beyond you know the, the casino capitalist society that we've somewhat developed here that you know i think we're gonna have to to you know have yeah come to jesus about what practices are serving us and what aren't what practices are not and what also do we want our society to look like because you know it sort of breaks my heart to hear that there are more vacant homes in the united states than there are homeless people and we are in a you know housing price you know increase in almost all major urban centers which is where we're going to need the greatest increase in our density of housing and that really is yeah like a, a problem we can fix we just have to pull up our big boy britches or, or big girl <laughs> britches or big person britches what have you <laughs> and we're, we're going to actually have to have that difficult and unpleasant discussion and we're also going to have to have that discussion with people that we don't agree with right and i think we also have to i think we also have to not to get too over consumed with 
with things. I, I think there's the, there's I think there's a tendency to say we want to solve this problem. And then it's like, but we have this problem, we have this problem, we have all these other problems. Suddenly we need the, the whole world needs to be changed. I think we need to focus on like a few things and let's let's fix those few things. And then let's worry about the next few things. We can't we can't change everything immediately. There are a million problems that need to be solved. And I think there's somewhat of an appetite for some people to help solve them. But if we if we get too broad with everything that we want to fix, nothing will get fixed because nothing's getting enough attention to actually get solved. I think we need to pick a couple of things to focus on first and then sort of move the line. That's why I said we have to have, we have to have the guts to have these kinds of conversations, right? We have to be able to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to have these kinds of conversations. I don't, I don't give a fuck whether you think I'm an elitist or you think that I'm poor. I think that this is an important conversation to have with members of of my immediate circle and to be honest if you're having that conversation with members of your immediate circle the majority of them are going to know that one you're probably not an elitist and two you're probably not poor and you so you don't need to have the shame that is associated with those people imposing those kinds of views on you have those kinds of you need to be able to have those kinds of conversations we can't change the world as individuals that don't communicate with other individuals. We can't improve our community if we only focus on having that conversation with ourselves. Granted, we have to start having that conversation with ourselves. But if we want to have inclusive institutions, we want to have inclusive organizations that support us financially, we have to talk to others about the need for them and the methods that we ourselves are are using uh, the you know i go back to to what's happening with women in in finance women in personal finance the reason why those organizations are doing so well right now is cuz those women talk to each other about it plain and simple they'll tell each other hey this is the, i'm i've i learned this about investing i'm using this budgeting app I'm saving money with these coupons. I finally reached this level of money in my 401k account, or this is what I'm contributing. They're talking to each other because they're proud of it. They're proud that they are making financial progress. And I think that that's something that has to happen in our our community. Instead of saying, look at me because I have all these things, or look at me because I take these nice vacations... We instead need to say, this is what I'm doing. Judge me however you want, but this is what I'm doing. I'm hoping what I'm doing can help you too, to see that there's a possibility. And I will say for folks at the lower end of the economic spectrum, this is really important for them to start taking pride in financial improvement. And financial improvement may mean, yeah, you set aside a dollar this week so that you can put that into an emergency fund or you had $5 taken out by acorns and put into a Roth IRA by scraping the change off of the top of your purchases those small kinds of things you need to get we need to get excited i think back to when we were first starting our journey of switching from being consumed with how everybody thought we looked and cared about us for what we could do with them 
to actually giving a shit about our finances. And it was during that time period when I started to take pride in my money. I was proud of what I was doing with my finances. I wasn't out there telling everybody I had that we had $51,000 in credit card debt. That wasn't how I started. You saved that for a couple of years later. <laughs> but I was proud that I sat down and did our budget for the month. I was proud that I realized that we were able to send $1,000 to our credit cards this month. You know, those kinds of being proud of those kinds of things. And I think that us taking pride in having a financial institution that serves our community and talking about a financial institution that serves our community is something that needs to happen and will propel an organization to eventually get to that point. So yeah, in, in the study that we were conducted um, of uh, LGBTQ folks, um, you know, financial experiences, uh, to your point, uh, people reported negative emotions and feelings much more often than positive feelings. And so about, you know, and, and much more often than non-LGBTQI respondents in, in the survey as well. So 46% said that they felt anxious compared to only 23% of non-LGBTQI respondents. And, you know, only 33%, a third said they felt that they were in control of their finances. I was sorry, only 20% said that they felt in control of their finances versus, versus a third of non-LGBTQI folks. And, and so... Did you find out financial. why they felt that way? Well, so, I mean, I think there, there's, you know, probably a, a significant number of, of, of reasons. We had just asked a, a, a range of, you know, types of emotions and, and mm -hmm. how how they felt. Folks can, can go check out that, that report on our website. But, but yeah, you know, f feelings like feeling overwhelmed or depressed about their finances much more often than non-LGBTQI folks and much more often than they reported, you know, feeling optimistic or confident. And I think moving from a place, you know, of financial insecurity to a greater, a place of greater financial security for so many reasons improves people's stress and their ability to, to handle their lives in other ways that really, you know, benefit people psychologically and in their health and, you know, so, you know, I, I really do think that taking financial health seriously and yeah, not poo-pooing it as, you know, purely a concern of, you know, yeah, rich, wealthy, you know, capitalists, you know, with their money bags, right, that actually taking, you know, one's personal health and well-being into account, you know, it's very, you know, life-affirming very powerful. And I think, you know, it has, has, you know, oh, oh, so much benefit, which is, is why I think it's really great that there's folks like you and other financial educators who are really doing the work to, to work with the LGBTQ community, because yeah, I mean, you know, many, many folks, you know, are feeling like they're struggling and need the tools in order to yeah, build, you know, a better life for themselves and their families. Exactly. Well, thank you. And you guys are clear is doing amazing work as well, which is why we wanted to have you come on the show. So before we wrap everything up, would you mind giving our audience a little bit of understanding of what CLEAR is, Center for LGBTQ Plus Economic Advancement Research? And I didn't know about the credit union that you're working on. If you could give us a, the elevator pitch on that too, that'd be great. 
Yeah. So CLEAR, yeah, Center for LGBTQ Economic Advancement and Research, is a now three-year-old nonprofit. And we focus on building research and policy and understanding about the LGBTQ community's unique financial needs and concerns and really, you know, elevating those concerns to decision makers at the federal level, as well as at, you know, the state or municipal level, and to also private leaders and decision makers, you know, within the financial services community. So that, you know, we, we can, you know, address those particular concerns and support more inclusive services and competent services and, and treatment for, for LGBTQ consumers and businesses. And of course, this project grew out of a nonprofit project that I had begun uh, right after graduating from law school, which was called the LGBTQ Credit Union Coalition, which I believe is the first time that I ever reached out and spoke to you guys uh, about my interest in LGBTQ affirming finance. But, you know, what I learned along my journey and working with other organizers is that yeah, there, there are a significant number of steps and milestones to, to reach. And one of the most important is to have an adequate field of membership for your organization, which also satisfies, you know, fair lending laws uh, is non-discriminatory. And so, as uh, I mentioned earlier, CLEAR has received preliminary approval from the National Credit Union Administration, which is the national body that oversees federal credit unions. And we've received approval along with another nonprofit to be an adequate field of membership for credit union that we are hoping to form that would serve the most financially excluded and vulnerable members of our communities. And so, you know, my organization focuses primarily on the LGBTQ community and the First Step Alliance, which is led by Nancy Iden, is focused on developing more affirming services for the formerly incarcerated community. And so we're particularly thinking about, you know, how can we intersectionality and focusing on the most financially vulnerable as being part of part of that project and yeah so i think that's that's clear in a nutshell nice well that's noble work and uh, we look forward to seeing how the the credit union grows and hopefully flourishes uh, in the near future so we'll have to keep us uh, posted on that maybe have you back to give our audience uh, an update as well I would be would be happy to for able to to reach our next milestone, which is to yeah meet meet our capital fundraise. So again, if people have any interest in LGBTQ community finance and want to talk about either any of the projects that Clear is working on or any projects that they are interested in in getting maybe some some you know views or support on from us. You know, we certainly welcome that outreach. And so you can um, you know, reach our contact page on our website, uh, which is uh, www.lgbtq-economics.org. Nice. I'm willing to that in the show notes, folks. Yeah. Spencer, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, talking about this media discussion, which I think needs to continue and hopefully more broadly and, and more loudly. Thank you both so much. It was really a pleasure. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. 
Thank you, Spencer, for a great interview and for helping us answer some of these important and often expensive questions. <laughs> Thank you, our listeners and viewers, for joining us for another episode. Get your Queer Money takeaway for this episode in this week's newsletter, as well as information on how you can connect with Spencer at Clear and your tip for reaching financial independence faster. Then join us this Thursday when we talk about the most affordable LGBTQ plus friendly city to live in Hawaii. And next Tuesday, when we talk with Christina Roman of Experian about how we're all feeling about our finances today and tips on how we can reduce our financial anxiety. Thank you and have a great week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.